Hi, and welcome to Live Now. I'm your host, Louisa Percadani. Do you ever find yourself at a crossroad, maybe rebuilding your life or launching a new dream, wondering what you should do next? Every week, my guests will share their journeys and how they navigate, navigated these moments and share stories of positivity, resilience, and living full out in the moment. And today, my conversation is with Mark McMahon. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Louisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Looking forward to this. Well, it's great to have you here. So Mark is a dentist, entertainer, entrepreneur, and a wanderluster. What I find fascinating about your journey, Mark, is your multiple pivots and following where your soul is calling you. And I'd love for you to share how you ended up driving to the end of the world. All right. That's a fun one. That was kind of the adventure of my life so far. It's, I, I don't want to say the, the adventure of my life because I'm still a young man. There could be many more. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background in my life. So it's leading up to the time when I took off on this adventure, driving to the end of the world. Um, I was a dentist. My father was a dentist. And I, I was practicing in California. I went to dental school in California. San Francisco, University of the Pacific in San Francisco, and then practiced there for about 15 years. Then I went back to Tucson and took over my dad's practice And um, when he was about to retire. And uh, so I spent, the, I spent the last six months of his practice with him. And at the end of the practice, at the end of his practice, the official passing of the torch, the passing of the, handing over the keys, we decided that we would go to Ireland together on a bike ride because he loved bike riding and he loved Ireland. He'd been to Ireland a few times. And I, at the time, I loved to travel too. I had taken, I had taken December off a couple of times and um, traveled for a month. Um, so I loved, and I, and I would just get into taking pictures. That was all I did, you know, almost like every day. Um, so my father, uh, turned over the practice to me. I mean, the, the, the official date came, it was a Thursday. And on, I think Saturday, we were on the way to Heathrow to go Heathrow in London to go to Ireland for this bike trip. We got to London and he wasn't feeling well. He hadn't been feeling well for a couple of days, but he didn't think it was a big deal. Got to London and the next day he was diagnosed with colon cancer. Whoa. Yeah. It was, it was like, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you that it eventually got him, but not right away. Um, that on that trip, he got some, he, he got, went to a doctor and he got some, some preliminary surgery done, but not definitive. And then he had to fly back to Tucson. I, he, I went on to Ireland without him. And because he had to recover, he said, go ahead and, you know, go over there. Wasn't much fun without him. But um, but anyway, I came back and then um, my dad had more treatment in two, went back to Tucson, had more treatment and then was in remission for a couple of years, I think th three and a half, four years. And he had some really good years. And those years were really heightened. The uh, the emotional uh, experience of his life was really heightened by the the threat of the cancer. And so he had some really good years. And then, but eventually it came back and it got him. And after he died, I was driving home from work and um, all of a sudden my own mortality just hit me like a ton of bricks, like, boom, I'm gonna die too. And in that same moment, I said to myself, I'm gonna, I gotta do what I need to do with my life. I'm gonna take six months off to do what I love. And that was to travel and take pictures. And then the, a date just kind of came along with it. November 1st, I'm going no matter what. Just It's just, I'm going to make it happen. It's going to happen. And then between the time I set the date and the time the date came around, instead of taking six months off, I ended up selling the dental practice, selling the name, I an, a trademark I had on the name Smileworks and selling uh, an infomercial I had produced on porcelain veneers, cosmetic dentistry. And all three separate deals with different parties were signed and sealed on the same day, November 1st, the day that I had committed to leaving. Mm, interesting. Yes. 
It was like getting kicked through the goalposts of life. Kaboom, you know, instead of six <laughs> months, I had sort of unlimited time and money. It wasn't unlimited, but but I had I had plenty of money and plenty of time. And I took off and I drove from Tucson all the way to the southern tip of South America. I got an old beat up Toyota pickup truck and a camper shell and um, just took off. And I spent two and a half years and went through 11 or 12 countries and just had just had the time of my life. Wow. So uh, why South America? Like, why not go back to Europe? Well, I, I had, um, I had done some traveling. Europe never really fascinated me, although I would like to go now. I, I would love to, I still do want to go there, but at the time I wanted more exotic kind of adventurous third world kind of environments were more exciting to me. And I had been to Asia and, um, Indonesia and, um, and I'd been to Mexico a lot because I lived right on the border in Tucson but I'd never been past Mexico to South America, Central or South America. And I spoke, I mean, I, I had studied Spanish for four years and I practiced it a tiny bit when I traveled. So I wanted to do two things. I wanted to just have a goal or a mission or some kind of a, a, a you know, how do you call it? My own Mount Everest, if you will, something that was doable. It's not, wasn't impossible to drive, um, but something that was still a challenge. And I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to learn my Spanish. I wanted to practice. I wanted to get my Spanish up to speed, which, and I did, I did all of the above. So, so, so are, you, are you pretty fearless as a person? Like, you know, most people are not like, I'm going to, I mean, you left for six, you're going to go for six months and then you're gone for two and a half years. Do you, do you just have like a fearlessness? Were you ever afraid of doing this, going on this adventure or? You know, I, I, um, when I wrote the book, I put together categories of different um, uh, different stories, I guess. And one of the categories was like life-threatening danger or something like that. And there were about six or seven moments where I was, you know, like arrested or somebody threatened to kill me or, you know, there's a, a number of them like that. And at the time, all of them happened. I never even thought about it. It was like, oh, okay, that's done. You know, it, but when I put them all together in a list, I was like, whoa, I, I had some, some rough scrapes. I was pretty fearless. I think I was kind of stupid in some instances because I would just go places where I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have gone. Like I would go to nightclub districts in these really terrible places where um, I would always go. I would always, I wasn't, I wasn't that stupid. I would always go. I would have already have befriended someone who would be my guide or my friend who I would go with. But I put myself in a lot of um, dangerous situations. And I had a, a buddy that I travel with, this guy, Senor S. Scott. His name was Scott. And everybody says when you pronounce S.C. in Spanish, they go S. Scott. So anyway, he was a, a real daredevil. He participated in all kinds of very um uh adventure sports like hang gliding and um extreme scuba diving all kinds of cool stuff and um so he tra he traveled with me for a couple of months i think he met me twice for a month or so each time and one of the times there were a couple of adventures that i had with him where it was like oh my god i can't believe i he got, he talked me into doing this. We, we went rafting. There was this, we were on this river between Ka, Costa Rica and Nicaragua, I believe it was. And there was this, this, these river rap, rapids on the river and we had snorkels and fins. And he says, ah, oh, man, let's just, let's run the rapids with our fins. And I'm like, are you freaking crazy? Crazy as rocks out there. And so he does it. He just gets into the water and goes through and he's down at the end and he's like, you know, and like the implicit challenge was like, come on, what are you waiting on? You know, he, you know, he wouldn't force me or anything, yeah. but I said, well, okay, I'll try it. And I got in there and I was being tumbled around and there were these boulders and I was sideways and it was like so easily could have smacked my head on a boulder and been dead. Oh my God. <laughs> like and when I came out it was like he had this phrase his father was a fascinating guy 
he was a friend of Lloyd Bridges, who, who was the um, uh, scuba diving guy. You remember that show? Yeah, yeah. He, he up some, I can't remember the name. Um, he was like a world-class, his dad was like a world-class skier, water skier, set world records in water skiing and also scuba diving. And he, and he ran a resort in the Cayman Islands or somewhere in the Caribbean. And Scott grew up summers doing that stuff with his dad. And he was like scuba diving when he was eight. And he was teaching it when he was, he, he was teaching it when he was like 12. And so we were in, uh, in Nicaragua and we were on the Corn Islands and there was a fish, it was a fishing village and the fishermen had tanks for doing lobster diving. And, but there was not a diving concession. And so we talked to the, the fishermen and said, hey, can we, can we borrow some of your tanks? They didn't have regulators. All they had was the tanks. So there was like no vest and no fancy, um, not a proper regulator that you would go in your mouth. And Scott was like, yeah, we can do this. You know, we'll just strap them on with a belt and we'll go down and we'll get, you know. And so we go down about 40 feet. And my tank runs out of air immediately and I'm 40 feet down and we're hanging on, we're hanging on rocks because we didn't have proper weight belts. So we we're like, we were going to pop back up to the surface. And I was motioning to him like, no air, no air, you know, crossing. And he looked at me and he just smirked, you know, he was just like, ah, and pointed at me. I mean, he eventually gave me some air and he knew, you know, I trusted him because of his, he was just, he was, uh, Wow. Trusted him. So, he was, so anyway, he gave me air and he, he, when we went back up to the surface, but, and that was only two out of maybe three or four things that we did that were crazy. So it's really, so having a companions along the way is really important in your, in your walkabouts. And then I love in the book, when you share, when you got to the bottom of the world, there the was the end of the world. The yes. End of the world. And the, and the, and the sign saw. on the wall. Yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking it was going to be anticlimactic because it took so long to get there, you know, and um, and the the afternoon that I got there, I'm wandering around at the end of the looking out towards Antarctica. And there was a few rocks and islands out in between. And I was t- dictating into a digital recorder. And I said something like, I, I felt like the presence, I could feel the, like the presence of North America and South America behind me and Antarctica in front of me. And I was thinking, wow, I've made this journey all the way down here. All that is behind me. It's like the end of the world and the beginning of something new. And then I turned and I was recording this on the digital recorder and I turned to the, to the left and there was a sign in Spanish and it said, El fin del mundo, el principio de todo, almost exactly at the end of the world, the beginning of everything Mm. right there on the wall. And I was like, wow. So, yeah, I had a it was a it was a great experience. So you come back, go to go for six months, you come back two and a half years later, and then you get engaged in a number of entrepreneurial pursuits, including something that you you develop called the 49 questions. Yes, that was really fun. I was engaged in um, a number of different categories of entrepreneurial things. One was called the portable professionals about the fact that at that time, all this digital stuff was coming around that you could start to do anything from anywhere. It's all, all obvious now, but back when Tim Ferriss wrote the book, the 40 hour work or the four hour work week, I was writing something called the portable professional And it was covering the same topics, not all the same topics that he covered, but some of the very same topics that he covered, I was writing at the very same time he was. And and we might have even crossed paths in Buenos Aires, Argentina, because that's where where he wrote part of his book. And that's where I wrote part of mine. That's where I wrote a lot of mine. But it was all about the fact that you could do anything from anywhere. I went, I I had, um, there was this thing called Vonage. Vonage is still a company now, but the first product that they released was an internet telephone. And you could, back in the day, you'd plug it into your, te- you'd, you had a phone and you'd plug it into your uh, computer and then you could dial like you were dialing from a telephone. And, um, and it, so I, I, my friend Joel 
was an accountant and he was living in Buenos Aires and he was still running his business that was in the Bay Area. And so I figured on the, so I got one, I, I was looking into these phones and they said it wouldn't work outside the US. And I thought, well, that's bogus. How could that be? It's the internet. How does the internet know whether it's outside the US or not? So I got a phone and I got a 415 number, which was for the San Francisco, for San Francisco. And I took it down to Buenos Aires where my friend Joel was living and he plugged it into his computer and he was dialing. And this was in 2002 or three, maybe probably two. And, um, and he could dial seven digits and get somebody in San Francisco and somebody in San Francisco could dial seven digits and get him in Buenos Aires and they didn't even know. And this was in 2002 or three. So if you can imagine how out outrageous that was at the time. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. If you can, if you can take your office and somebody can dial you direct from your landline, I mean, cell phones weren't even around then. Um, what an amazing thing you could do. You could do a lot of people, consultants and many kind of professions could do anything from anywhere. And that's how I started the portable professional. Uh, but, uh, and then the other thing that we that you mentioned was something called 49 questions. Yeah, I did some, I did a lot of kind of sort of spiritual personal growth things that I, that I uh, enjoyed uh, the sound healing that we've talked about. And then the 49 questions was um, 49 thought provoking questions is a card deck with one side had a beautiful image that I'd taken a lot of them on my trip and some of them from Asia. And then the other side was a thought provoking question and you could play games, you know, party kind party, you know, dinner games or, at, or uh, what have you. And I developed sort of a, and, um, and a way to play a game where you would do this little induction and you'd pull a card without looking at the question and take a deep breath and you go, oh, with the, the heart card on your chest and you feel the vibration. And then as soon as you ran out of breath, you would look at the question for the first time and you'd take your intuitive hit. And by doing this long awe and feeling the vibration in your chest, it would take people out of their thinking mind. And then they would, and then I would coach them to take the first hit that they got from the answer, from the question. And nine out of 10 people would get some kind of a intuitive, you know, something that was significant. Like, wow. Can you, yeah. can you, can you remember one of the questions? Yeah, there was, um, who am I? Was one of them. Could I drop something from my life? in an instant what's the difference between passion and oh intention and attention um i used a method to deter i had about 300 questions that i was considering that i just got from all kinds of different places and then i was studying this guy dr uh david hawkins from sedona he wrote the book power versus force and he used kinesiology as a way to measure the level of consciousness of, a, of something. So you could test something using this system to see whether on a scale of zero to a thousand, what the scale of consciousness it was. And like 200 was, was kind of baseline. Anything less than 200 was kind of negative. And then anything from 200 to 400, 400 was pretty positive. And then 500, 600 was very positive. And then above that was like, Jesus or Krishna or you know some something like that so there was this way to use this system I knew some of the people who were his his followers and so I had these questions and we tested them blind we'd take the I took the questions and I put them all individually in an in an envelope so there was we had a, a couple hundred envelopes and then we tested them and then there was one uh, some of them came out just above 200, very few of them came out lower than 200, but um, some of them came out in the 300s. Uh, most of the ones that I chose came out like in the high 200s or 300s and some in the 400s. And there was one that came out at like 525. And that question was, what if the life I'm living now is actually a nightmare from which I could awaken? And that was the one that tested the highest. Oh, 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 say it again. 
What if the life that I'm living now is actually a nightmare from which I could awaken? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of fun ones. And I'm, I, I hope that, um, you know, I published, I self-published that. And I, I think I did a thousand of them or something like that. And I, I gave a lot away and sold the rest of them. And I have a few copies left, but um, I would like to, um, I would like to get it going again. So Mark, are, are you someone who, how do these ideas come to you? Like how did the 49 questions, are you just sitting around and is that how your brain works or are you, know, you a guy? How did that all come together? I cannot remember the original genesis of that. Um, I don't know. Anthony Robbins talked about the power of questions. I remember that. I remember got that message from him, like asking a powerful question can, can, uh, if there, there were, I had a lot of quotes about the power of questions. The, a, a question well composed is, is half, you're halfway to the answer with a question that's clearly defined. So if you have, if you're stuck and you can pose a question that's very specific about your situation, you've got the, you know, you're there, you're halfway there. Hmm. If you have a challenge and you don't, it's not clear, if you can focus it into a very clear question, it's, you're halfway there. So, okay. um, so I think I, 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 I kind of was enamored with the power of questions and from a, a couple different angles, a couple different people had studied that and uh and i just came up with all these questions and then and then i wanted a card deck and i didn't want to do 52 and i didn't want to do 50 but i wanted about that number and then 49 had a lot of nice significances and so that's the number that i chose so when you ask a really good question does that mean that we like sometimes i think that we don't want to ask the questions because we already know the answer we're afraid to ask the question well that certainly can be true but i mean if you have a serious challenge that you want to solve then that's a different issue i mean if you know that you have something that you're not looking at that's a whole different can of worms right so you're saying that if we have something that we really want to figure out that we need to wait on the question? We need well, to you need to work on the, what is the question that you need the, an answer from? And then, and then once, that's, once that's really clear, then the, the answer becomes a lot, the solution to your problem becomes a lot clearer. And you can ask other people and, and the answer could, come from someone else or because sometimes I feel that if we ask questions like if we have a need to ask questions like say you're in a relationship with somebody and all of a sudden and you start asking your everybody around you like like feedback about the relationship or maybe it's your job or and if you're asking questions outside of yourself there's something uh like it's like you're not trusting your own your own journey in the situation you know mm -hmm. yes i see that but i, I think that. What, what that's distinct from what you're saying i would say yes because if you if you're um can you give can you give me an on the court example oh uh, well like in business if you don't know if you if you don't know exactly what your market is and you, at, at, or you know, if you have a question about a direction you want to take, say the, the market or the type of customers you're looking for, um, um, I don't know. Uh, so this seems really obvious, but what what are the characteristics of the the my marketplace or the or my customer? What are the what are the characteristics of my ideal customer? Okay. 
And then you answer that and then you're, oh, okay. Then it becomes obvious. Okay. Then this kind of a customer, this kind of a person is going to, it's going to make your, your, your business and your marketing much clearer. Okay. Gotcha. So that's one kind of question, right? And then not to digress here a lot, but so now that we can keep going forward. So you, you're, you come back, you, you'd start doing these different entrepreneurial pursuits and then you look at your dental journey differently. You're like, you know, you, 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 you change, you were like, how can I do dent, dentistry different right um no not really i i I went to mexico i thought i was going to get a job in mexico i had a um i had let my dental license lapse and i um so it would have been quite a challenge to get my license back in arizona or california both both of them would have been a big challenge to get to take the i would have to take the board exam again and it's not it's not it's difficult uh, it's, a, it's challenging for a variety of reasons. And, um, and I lived very close to Mexico and I thought, well, maybe I can get a, le- a license in Mexico easier and I could go down and, and um, work down there two days a week or something. And so I went down there and I, and I scheduled appointments in four different offices as a patient to check out what it was like from the inside before I decided I wanted to do that. And so on this one day, I had these four appointments and I remember the, this one particular office where they took a, this panoramic x-ray, you know, a big uh, entire mouth x-ray, and they took me to a dental chair and sat me down. And there was this gigantic, ginormous living room, bigger than living room size screen in front of me. I remember having my cowboy boots crossed in front of me, looking up at the screen. And then I, about two minutes later, boom, there was my x-ray, you know six feet wide in front of me. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I, either I'm really out of the, this is, a, this is Mexico, either I'm really out of the loop or this is just amazing. And, um, and so I went on to find out that they had this amazing technology and the price was like one third of what it was in, in the United States. And the other fascinating thing was that that I came to find out not instantly was that their level of compassion was so much different than the US. Just the, the level of compassion, the, the Mexican culture is much more heart-centered than we are in the United States. And that it gets expressed in their healthcare system as like, you feel like they are your mother or your father or your brother is taking care of you. And you know, they're not going to, that's how it feels. You just feel like they're taking really good care of you Mm. on an emotional, you know, just on a compassion and emotional level. And um, so, but, but on that first visit, I thought, wow, this is amazing. The prices were so low that I knew I wouldn't be able to make much money as a dentist there. But I thought this, there's an opportunity here to tell people in the U.S., about this, and there were already Americans going, for sure. Um, but um, but I saw this opportunity, and that's how I started Coyote Dental. I took a I took a couple down from Tucson, drove them down, and they paid me fifty bucks each. And I waited for them for their appointments. And the guy just sort of like skipped out of the treatment room. He was so happy. He had just saved like sixteen hundred bucks in one visit, and he'd gotten a crown and some kind of little surgical procedure and, you know, one visit, 1600 bucks. He was like, yeah, that was worth, that was worth 50 bucks, you know? And so I had this hundred dollar bill in my pocket and I'm thinking this, there's something here, you know? And then, um, and then, so I started doing that and I got some publicity. I got on the, on the radio and I got on, the front page of the Tucson newspaper and, and I was in TV a couple of times. And before you knew it, I, we had a van and we we're taking, you know, loads of people down a couple of times a week. Wow. And so now, um, so you've been doing coyote dental and then you, you took another trip to uh, Indonesia, Bali, where did you go? Yes, I was actually looking around at um, dental tourism around the world, and that was a good excuse to go to 
to Thailand because Bangkok uh, is famous for its hospitals. They have like, they have like five-star their hotel, their hospitals are like five-star hotels and um, they have, so you can go there and you can save, uh, you can have a, a eye surgery or hip replacement, knee replacement, what have you, and save, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and you get treated like, you know, like a first-class hotel. And so I, I kind of went there looking, researching dental tourism there, um, but mostly just for the tour. I mean, I, I still um, love to travel and take pictures. I ended up going to, um, I spent some time in, in Thailand. I had a friend in Chiang Mai, spent some time in, in Bangkok. And then, um, and then I went to Bali, stayed there for a little while. And then I went to Java, Indonesia, and um, I hiked these two volcanoes in two days, one, one day after the other. And I was, um, I knew that I was pretty wasted, pretty stressed out from the physical uh, aspect of the hiking and getting up um, like one in the morning in order to get to these volcanoes in time to hike them for the sunrise. And um, so I checked into a hotel and I figured I was just going to chill out for a day or two, a couple of days. And then um, the second day, I got up early in the morning to get to the train station to get to another town in Indonesia and in, on Java. And I'm walking down the street and my feet are like flopping around. And I'm like, wow, I guess maybe my feet are still, I'm still really sore. And I just kind of took a closer look and it was not really sore muscles. My feet were just, I couldn't control my feet. And then within two days, I couldn't walk. And, um, and uh, I don't know how many details you want me to go into, well, but I, I, I mean, so, so you're, you're in Asia, you can't walk and, uh, and what do they figure out that you, what, what, what do they figure out that you have? I was in a smaller town in Indonesia in, on Java. Um, and there didn't have a very big hospital. And I tried to get to see, uh, it was a weekend and I couldn't see a neurologist. I think I saw one the next day, but, and they just didn't have any, they, they didn't do any tests on me. And they gave me some, some, um, some vitamins and said, give it a few days and see what happens. My sister is a pediatrician here in Tucson. And I spoke to her about it and um, she, she nailed it kind of right on when I told her these very specific um, symptoms that I had. And she said, uh, it's probably it might be Guillain-Barre syndrome and um and I'd never heard of it so it didn't stick in my head I'm like oh maybe I don't know and then um so I ended up going from from Indonesia back to Thailand back to Bangkok Thailand because I knew that they had these great hospitals there and um and so I went directly there to get diagnosed and see what the heck was going on and um had some very interesting adventures in Thai, in in Bangkok. Um, when I arrived, I had met somebody in that town. I'd met a few people in a seminar I had taken in Bangkok. And um, I called one of them up and told her I was coming back. Actually, this was somebody that I knew from Phoenix. Did you know LaDawn? Yes. She was there. Um, she was in, oh, where was she? She was in another country. I think she was in Malaysia or she was on her way to, to, to live in Malaysia. And so she and I reviewed the landmark forum in Bangkok and in, and there I met this guy, Robert. And she said, oh, Robert's living in Bangkok. He knows his way around. When you get into Bangkok, maybe he can help you, um, help you because I needed help. I couldn't walk and I had to get to the doctor and get. And so I got in touch with him and he turned into be, he turned out to be a freaking absolute angel. He picked me up at the hotel. He met me in a, in a cab at the airport and I got wheeled up in, an, in a wheelchair, you know, and I had to get up and get into the cabin. And then we were talking about, I wanted to go to hospitals or, or see neurologists. And, and he said, did you want to go see would you be willing to go see a Chinese medical doctor? He's a miracle worker. And he told me about 
he had had experiences himself and several of his friends had miraculous experiences with this guy. And I said, yeah, and I'm open to anything I, I, I you know, I've got to do. I want to do the, the, the traditional medical thing, but I'm certainly open to that also. And um, so he took me into this guy and he did this test on me. He was, he, he didn't speak any English. He didn't speak any Thai, but there was a Chinese person who was translating and he touched this little, the um, acupuncture point on your wrist or on your, on your hand between your thumb and your finger. It's, I think it's called the Hoku point or something like that, but it's like the, a headache point. But he touched that with his finger and he, there was this like electric shock going into my hand. And I was like, wow. And then he touched me on the shoulder and my entire shoulder carriage, my, my shoulder just like lifted up at his touch from this electrical stimulation that his, his this mojo that he had with his, his, um, with his hands. And he told me that he couldn't, based on the, on what was going on, he couldn't do any treatment on me without me getting a CAT scan of my brain, because it could be something there that he could damage and make worse. So he had to rule out some things before he could do any treatment. So that gave me so that I went to see these other doctors in the, these couple hospitals and I got a CAT scan and I also eventually got a, a, a spinal tap, but I took the CAT scan back to this doctor, uh, but the Chinese medical doctor, and he did this thing that he called running the lines and he would grab one of my fingernails at a time. He did all 10 of them. He would grab them with his thumb and his forefinger and kind of pinch right at the bed of the nail with one of his hands. And then he sort of waved the other one across above it without touching it. And you could see he was just focusing all of his intent with his, with this free hand and with his face, you could just see he was, he was focused. And, and I felt these electrical shocks run all the way up my wrist up towards my shoulder. And he did this on all 10 of my fingers. And then he touched my forehead, like right where my third eye is with a couple of his fingers. And I could feel it felt like this octopus was going inside my head from that point, like, like this four inch octopus went into my brain. And I was like, whoa, I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something here. And then after he did the treatment, we tested my toes, which he had tested before, which weren't moving at all. And then they, at that moment, they were moving like a, I could move them like an eighth of an inch. And I was like, oh, my gosh, something's working. It's working. So um, so he said, well, through the interpreter, he said, um, come back in two days. Hopefully you should feel you should experience like a 30 percent improvement between now and then. Then we'll do it again. And unfortunately, um, there was no improvement. So I ended up. Um, I ended up, well, there's more to the story running around to hospitals and- But then getting, what were you, di you got back to the States and you were diagnosed with- I was diagnosed there. I, oh. got, uh, I got a CAT scan. I mean, I got, a, I got a, a spinal tap and there's something in that that's sort of a differential diagnosis for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Everything I had, the, the symmetry and the, um, the, sym the symptoms all matched. Guillain-Barre syndrome. And um, so the first neurologist that I saw, that's what he said. And I didn't like the guy and he was kind of, I didn't, and he didn't like the fact that I was getting a CAT scan and taking it to a Chinese medical doctor. So we're, we just didn't hit it off. Um, so I ended up going to a better, a, a, what I thought was a better uh, um, neurologist. And he, he, um, he gave me the lowdown and explained it to me. And I was like, okay, yeah, I think I think you're right. And uh, so then he even recommended there were some really high priced hospitals that wanted to charge $25,000 for the treatment. And um, and he said, well, there's kind of like a welfare hospital that you can go and you get basically the same same treatment, but it's not going to be a it's not going to be pretty. And I thought, well, I don't care you know, if I don't have to, if I can get in and pay a couple thousand instead of twenty five because my insurance wouldn't cover didn't didn't cover over there so i went and checked that out and it was like oh no this was like worse than the post office this was the post office times 10 and um uh i i was feeling like shit can i can i say that on this sure 
Okay. I was not feeling well at all. And I was trying to, and my, this, this friend, uh, Robert was, was, uh, at this point had been helping me out for several days and his patients were running, was running thin. So I decided I wanted to head back to the States and made, made those arrangements. But the night that night when we, when I arrived and he was telling me about the Chinese medical doctor, I arrived at the airport about eight o'clock and I had this, um, you know, I hadn't had any dinner and he said, well, nothing we can do tonight. Do you want to go get some dinner? I know this really cool place. They serve this great fusion of Thai and sushi together. And um, so it sounded awesome to me. So he takes me to this place and there's this, it's mostly really nice, really sleek white marble. And there's just four marble steps you have to get up. And, you know, he has to slip me, he has to like lift me up by the shoulders and lift me up one step at a time. And then you know, kind of walks me holding my shoulders to the chair, to the rest, to the, to the table. And um, at that point, it wasn't for, the, you know, the first night I got to Bangkok, the diagnosis wasn't really established. And uh, I was confronted with this undercurrent of like stark terror because my feet weren't working and my hands were getting weak. So I couldn't use my hands very efficiently. And I didn't know what I had. I didn't know if it was permanent. And I didn't know if it was going to get worse, because it seemed like it was progressing slowly. So there was this undercurrent of terror going on. But here I was in this restaurant with this outrageous food. And I just said to myself, like, um, so I, I, I kind of sort of flipped into some altered state. And I was like, oh, my God, this I'm just going to eat the shit out of this food. It was so good. And I was. Um, that the terror underneath something told me I was going to be OK, but there was still this undercurrent of terror. And and I was I was so alive. I'd never felt more alive in my life than I did at that dinner. It was almost like a it, it wasn't. I want to say it was like a psychedelic experience, although there wasn't any hallucinations, but I was so elevated and so everything was so electric mm. um, because of that undercurrent of fear that, uh, but it was really undercurrent. I wasn't feeling fear. I was just feeling like alive, like, oh my God, kind of like, I'm, what if this was my last meal kind of thing, you know, or, you know. Who knows? But it was it was it was a, a striking and wonderful experience that I had. And then he takes me back to the hotel. He was staying in like a boarding house kind of hotel and he got me a room there. And so he got me into the room and I'm on the bed and I had to like like roll kind of roll off the, onto the floor and crawl to the toilet to go to the bathroom. And then I got back into my bed and there was a couple of bottles of water on the nightstand. And I grabbed one and I tried to open it. I didn't have enough strength in my hands to pop the crack on this regular, you know, bottle of water. And I'm like, you know, it's the middle, it's like 11 o'clock at night. It's not a hotel. It's kind of a boarding house. So there's nobody to call. I didn't want to bug Robert. Hey, can you come up and open my, so I'm like, wow. Then it kind of hit me. Like mom is not going to come and rescue me here. And I was just like, wow. And I, so I, I had a pen and I hold the bottle of water in one end and I had a, this pen in the other and I just go kaboom and I slammed the pen into the bottle of water so that I could drink the water. And I was like, I think I'm in trouble here. <laughs> yeah, wow. So then you get, you fly back home and you get treatment and-, and Yes, I, I arrived back in Tucson on 4th of July and- um, interesting stuff going on with my family that my family had a family reunion, a big family reunion in Denver. And they were all gone except for my one brother. One of my brothers was sick and he was in the same hospital I was. So we were like down the hall from each other, but um, I got there on 4th of July and they had, um, you know, the diagnosis, I was pretty confident of the diagnosis, but they had to run through all the tests again, like, for their cash flow, I guess. I don't know. But they had to do the spinal tap and do all the 
same tests and and um and then within it but but in a very short period of time they took awesome care of me um i was on a treatment program with um uh, this uh iv drip of ivig inter uh, human antibody so it's like a quart or like a couple pints of this iv stuff that i took every day for five days and within a couple of days i could feel i could didn't feel good but i could feel something was working and um and then i went from the hospital to a rehab center for about 10 days physical rehab and then um and then i had rehab outpatient for a couple months after that and, and you had to learn how to walk again and yeah i mean the um the muscles guillain barre is a um it affects the myelin sheath of your nerves, which is like if you have an uh, electrical wire has a plastic sheath around it, copper wire has this plastic sheath around it. That's what the myelin is. It's a sheath around the, um, the nerve and it helps so that the, the nerve can conduct the electrical charge. So it gets eaten up by your body. The autoimmune, your body starts to eat itself and it eats that that tissue and so that affects the um outbound message from your brain does not get to where it needs to go and it starts in your extremities and works its way in and um i was very fortunate i got it diagnosed really fast and 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 it was not it didn't seem to be progressing as fast so i guess some some cases progress faster some people don't get diagnosed very as quickly they misdiagnose it um, and it yeah, can it's go, very, it's very dangerous. It's life-threatening. I mean, it can, yes, it can be, it can yeah. be. So, um, so go ahead. So anyway, I got, I, uh, my nephew came into the rehab center or no, I think he came into the hospital and he brought one of my bright orange shirts and he helped me make the shirt. And it said 110% recovery across the front. And then across the back, it said Mark's back. And I was on a mission to, uh, I was on a mission that I was going to, I was going to get back to 110%. And I even, I set some dates and, and I, um, within a couple of months, I did, uh, ran a half a marathon. And then a month or two after that, I crossed the Grand Canyon with some friends of mine. So, but I was on a mission from the very beginning, from the get-go, I was, in, when I, even when I was in the hospital, I was doing, I would sit up, I was on um, Thailand time. So I was really jet lagged. So I was waking up at three in the morning and I would sit myself up on the edge of the bed and I would do these chants because I was into sound healing. That was one of the other things that I had done is pursued uh, this sound healing technology using voice as a methodology for sending vibration to different parts of your body. So I didn't even know where the damage was. I wasn't clear whether the damage was in my brain or in the nerves, you know, where the affected areas were, but I was just sending this, this sounds to my feet. I was like sitting up at the edge of my bed doing these full on all <laughs> chance at three in the mornings and <laughs> three in the morning. And <laughs> I don't know what they thought of me in the hospital, but they, they, uh, they left me alone and, uh, they took and great here, care of me. And I here you careful. are, and you look amazing. You're, you said you're in the best shape of your life right now. And how many years later is this now? Um, this was, uh, this is a little over uh, three years plus a couple months, 4th of July, three years ago. Wow. Well, Mark, like, I, I just loved having you here today. So many different facets of your journey to the end of the earth, your 49 questions your mindset in and that in your orange t-shirt you know uh just 110 percent it's just it's very inspiring and uh um just how you just you just never give up and you follow you know you follow your follow these creative promptings and your soul's promptings it's just very it's very cool well, thank you. That's been a, I've had a fascinating life. And so now as you go forward from here, like what, what do you want to, what do you think is most important in your everyday life as, as your practices, as you move forward now? 
Well, I'm doing something different right now. A lot of the projects that I did, you know, like five or six projects since, since being a dentist, some of them as a dentist, um, I would pursue, especially after I had this big windfall, I would have a really great idea and I would take it to a certain level. And there would be, a, I would come to a point where it would be like, I'd get to a, an impasse where I had to solve some problem to move forward. And I would just, ah, this isn't any fun anymore. And I would shift. And a lot of these projects could have turned into a full-on life or a full-on company for sure, full business for sure. And I would just quit or I would shift away. I'd find something more interesting and I would gravitate away. And the other one project would sort of die on the vine and my interest would go into another area. And right now with the Coyote Dental, the dental tourism business, I'm really... Um, trying to do it a little differently than I have. And that is to push forward. And I want to take the business that I started between Tucson and Nogales. I'm in the process of expanding it to a national company where we get people from all over USA and Canada to fly to a border city or to a resort town where they can save money on their teeth. Because there's a lot of big cases where, um, you know, there's people, it's not unusual for people to get diagnosed with $20,000 worth of dental work and even up to $65,000, $70,000 worth of dental work. So if you can go to Mexico and get it done for one third of that, that's a lot of money left over for margaritas. It sure and, is. Um, so, um, so that's what I'm working on now is launching a promotional campaign to get it out on a national basis. And, um, and it's not my, you know, the the certain parts of that, the, the management and some aspects are not my expertise, but I'm working to, to find a way to get that expertise on board and make this expansion happen. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenge, but I'm I'm uh, I'm having fun. All right. I'm finding a way to make it fun. See? All right. Well, I'm wishing you continued success on this next leg of your journey. And uh, I will have Mark's contact information, whether you're interested in traveling to the end of the world or going and finding out what's available to you in Mexico, or if you you are in a comeback with your health, uh, Mark is definitely someone to just to know. So thanks, Mark, for being here today. It's been great. And um, look forward to staying in touch and seeing what's next with you. Thank you so much. It's been fun. And thanks, everyone, for being here and uh, for another episode of Live Now. And if uh, you are liking what you're hearing here, uh, you know, definitely give us a like and share it with your friends. And until we see you next time, just remember to live full out in the moment. Thanks so much.